recent survey found that American adults spend up to three hours a day on social media. Imagine that, three hours a day on social media. This lesson is not about that, although there probably needs to be a lesson about that. Uh, we've talked some about that in the past, and we'll need to do so again, I'm sure. But here's the contrast. So American adults spend as much as three hours a day on social media, but the same surveys indicate that they spend just 37 minutes a day on average interacting with their kids. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. Can you imagine? I would spend three hours on social media, but just 37 minutes with my kids. That seems way out of, uh, of whack, doesn't it? That just seems crazy. I, I, obviously, that's not nearly enough time, and there's no way that parents who are spending that little amount of time can adequately deal with essential matters relative to their children and their children's upbringing. Now, I know that our parents are doing a much, a much better job than that. That's, that's what the world is doing, but I know that our parents are much more diligent and thorough than that. But I think there's always the danger that we could be neglecting to talk about important subjects uh, and, and to discuss important things with our kids. And so tonight, I want to suggest five things that parents need to be discussing with their teenagers. This is not a thorough, all-inclusive list, but I hope that we can deal with some really important things. Uh, just a, some motivation to our parents to be sure that you're touching all the bases when it comes to raising your kids. We stop here just briefly to say thank you for being here on this Sunday evening. We're glad for the time to be together, and we're glad for your interest and involvement and your participation in this Sunday night assembly. There are a lot of places still not able to, or not willing to maybe, uh, assemble uh, on Sunday evening and Wednesday night. We're able to do so, and we're glad to be able to do so, and, and we appreciate your participation in that. Thank you for being here tonight, and thanks to those who are visiting with us. As I said, this is not an all-inclusive list, but hopefully we can deal with some things that are really important. You need, if, if you have kids in your household, you need to be discussing with them something like drinking alcohol. I'm going to tell you, I, I'm concerned that we are losing the battle uh, among God's people when it comes to this subject of alcohol consumption. More and more Christians, including more and more preachers are taking a really soft line when they're talking about alcohol consumption. These are the sorts of people who would tell us it's, it's a sin to get drunk, but we can't really say it's wrong to drink in so-called moderation. I want to tell you, that message is getting out and our young people are, are taking it hook, line, and sinker, and I'm afraid that we're losing this battle and you parents need to be really on top of this situation. And we need to convince our kids that is absolutely wrong. We need to teach our kids that any consumption of alcohol is a sin. Right? We're not putting that in the realm of judgment. We're stating it emphatically. The New Testament, the whole Bible teaches us not to consume alcohol. 
I want this is a, this is a, a, a huge subject. Obviously, we've talked about it in the past. Even more recently, we've had an entire lesson on this subject. So I'm not going to go into great depth, but I would just encourage you to look at three statements that Peter made in First Peter. In the epistle of First Peter, First Peter chapter one verse thirteen, wherefore gird up the loins of your mind, and be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I want to emphasize: be sober. Then in First Peter four verse seven, but the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober, and watch unto prayer. And then in chapter five verse eight, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. All right, there's more than one Greek word that is translated in our New Testament with the word sober. Sometimes the, the, the original word means to be simply self-controlled or self-disciplined, but then there's this word. This word means exactly what we think when we hear the word sober. When you hear the word sober, you think that it relates to the consumption of alcohol, right? A person is sober or he's drunk. Uh, That's the way we use the term today. And that's what this word actually means that's used these three times in 1 Peter that we have noted. This comes from the Greek word nepho. And that word means literally to abstain from the consumption of alcohol. Notice, the New Englishman's Greek concordance says to abstain from alcohol, thus to be sober. Well, if I'm drinking a little, if I'm drinking in so-called moderation, if I'm social drinking, then I'm not abstaining, right? To abstain means none at all. To abstain from wine, thus to be sober. Kittle's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament says completely unaffected by wine. Well, I... I don't know how you say it any plainer than that. I can't be completely unaffected by wine if I'm drinking some wine. If I'm drinking some wine, I'm affected by that wine. Again, Strong's Exhaustive Concordance says to abstain from wine. And then here's one that's really plain. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words says to be free from the influence of intoxicants. Free from the influence of intoxicants. Well, I'm not free from their influence if I am imbibing intoxicants. Experts say that the very first sip of alcohol begins to affect one's thinking and judgment. I'm under the influence of intoxicants if I've taken in any at all. And so uh, these kind of arguments lead us to the very affirmative conclusion that as the people of God, we cannot consume any alcohol at all. No drinking. Now, as I said, we're getting an awful lot of mixed messages, uh, even among our own brethren these days. And so it's going to challenge you parents to be even more uh, engaged and working even harder to, to convince our young people that they should not be consuming alcohol at all. I would add just a sort of a footnote to that observation and talk about marijuana. You know, everything that we say about alcohol should also be said about marijuana and the influence of marijuana. You know, folks used to say, well, that's a whole different, that's a whole different thing. You know, marijuana is illegal. You know, and so to the people who are advocating social drinking, we say, well, what about marijuana? Well, well, that's, that's, that's a whole different game, they say, because marijuana is illegal. It's not anymore, right? 
We're getting a lot more liberal laws about marijuana. Lots of places it's legal. My guess is in a lot more places it will be legal. And I want to tell you, if you can justify moderate consumption of alcohol, you can also justify the moderate consumption of marijuana. But on the other hand, everything that we say that indicates we shouldn't be drinking alcohol at all says that we shouldn't be using marijuana at all, and we've got to convince our young people of that. Uh, it, it's, not a, it's not a gray area. It's black and white. It's yes or no. It's some or none. It's none. We should not be drinking alcohol. We need to teach our young people that. Uh, and, and you're going to have to be on your toes to get that message across because there's a lot of people who are trying to cloud that issue. We need to talk to our young people about modesty. It's that time of year, obviously, and we don't even really need to comment about the extreme immodesty that is in the world. You know that that's the case. And, and again, I, I, don't have to, I don't have to prove that to you. I don't even have to really comment strongly about it because you know if you've been out in public at all in these warm summer months, you see and, and are sadly shocked by the immodesty of the world. But I'm concerned that we see Christians following along. Maybe not as extreme, maybe not out there at the very wildest forms of immodesty, but Christians are following. And young people are tempted in matters of modesty. Parents, are you discussing this with your kids? You need to. Let me do a quick review with you of an argument we make from some of the very earliest statements in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 2, when Adam and Eve were formed, both were naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. But after they had sinned, it says the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Uh, as we've said so many times before, this, this word apron describes just a very brief covering over their private parts. That's all that it was. But when you think about it, not all that much different than, for instance, a swimsuit might be on a person today. They sewed fig leaves to, the, uh, to cover themselves. But when the Lord came into the garden... It says, they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So, when they understood their nakedness, they did an inadequate job of covering themselves, but they, Adam still felt naked. And apparently God agreed with that analysis because... At the end of that, it says, Adam, unto Adam also unto his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothed them. So the aprons that just basically covered their private parts weren't nearly enough. They weren't clothed. They were still naked by their own estimation. They were still naked. What would you say about someone wearing a modern swimsuit today? They're naked, right? God made coats of skins and covered them or clothed them. They weren't clothed before. He made these coats of skins. And you can study that word. And that suggests a covering, a tunic-like covering that came from the neck all the way down well below the knees. Almost all authorities will acknowledge that definition. That being the case, you're naked. If you're, expo if you're exposing parts of your torso, if you're exposing your 
your leg uh, above the knee, you're exposing your nakedness. And this very early episode gives us that definition. Understand, we're just looking at that text to define what nakedness is. We've got we to gotta avoid nakedness. But actually, the standard for us as Christians is much higher than that. The standard for Christians is not just cover your basic nakedness. The standard for Christians is modest. In 1 Timothy 2, verse 9, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Modest apparel is the standard for us. I would just ask you a very simple question. If, if modern swimsuits and shorts are modest, what would qualify as immodest? I don't think you can answer that question. It's disturbing to me to know many instances where parents let their kids wear things that the parents wouldn't wear themselves. That's a problem. That's a real problem. You need to talk to your kids about modesty. Uh, it's, it's an important subject. And again, something that we're really in trouble about as God's people uh, because the world has so strongly impacted our thinking and our actions Parents, you need to talk to your young people about lasciviousness. Now, there's a word, of course, that we don't talk, we don't use that word in normal conversation. We don't talk about it very much. It's sort of a church word, but it's a very important word. It's listed among the works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19 through 21. We don't even have to read all of that. There's a lot of sins listed there as the works of the flesh. I just highlight to you that lasciviousness is one of the works of the flesh and point out that Paul says, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that's all we have to say. That's how important that it is. Those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. You better be talking to your young people about lasciviousness. So, So what is it? Since it's a word that we're not terribly familiar with and don't use very often what is it look to a definition of lasciviousness vine says that lasciviousness is excess absence of restraint indecency wantonness the prominent idea is shameless conduct look at this word wantonness right here the word wanton means uh, excessive no restraint and specifically that which excites or expresses sexual desire that's what wantonness is so to to excite or to express sexual desire is lasciviousness Thayer's definition is probably even plainer unbridled lust excess wantonness shamelessness wanton acts or manners as filthy words indecent bodily movements unchaste handling of males and females here's the word lust uh, and so Thayer says it's unbridled lust. And that suggests then, in particular, things that provoke sexual desire. Now, think about that. Our teens are obviously at a critical time in life. And you need to talk to them about this. And you need to help them avoid situations and activities wherein lasciviousness uh, excessive sexual desires are likely. You need to be talking to, to your kids about that. Because, as, as we read there in Galatians 5, 
If they're guilty of lasciviousness, they're putting themselves in a sinful situation that can keep them out of heaven. And so you need to be talking to them about lasciviousness. Specifically, especially when our kids become of dating age. Talk to them about what they can and can't do. Talk about the do's and don'ts. I'm concerned a lot of parents never, never even offer any coaching or help to the young people uh, in regards to lasciviousness, lust, evil, sexual desire. As a footnote to that, let us mention dancing. Because what's wrong with dancing is it's lasciviousness. Every once in a while you hear someone say, well, where, where does the Bible say you can't dance? Where does the Bible say it's wrong to, to, to be dancing? Well, it never says it in those exact words, but what it does do is condemn lasciviousness, right? I want to go back with you to this definition of, by Thayer of lasciviousness. Indecent bodily movements, unchaste handling of males and females. You know, he could have just said, instead of saying it that way, he could have almost just said dancing. Because that is exactly what modern dancing is, right? It's indecent bodily movements. It's unchaste handling of males and females. And so dancing is certainly a form of lasciviousness. And we need to talk to our kids about that. That's what dancing is and that's what's wrong with it. Yet we still hear about Christian kids going to dances, going to the prom. And even you, you see them po- talk about social media, and I don't do social media, but I have been exposed to some pictures that kids post on their social media sites going to the prom. It's lasciviousness. Have you talked to your kids about that? Have you told them how wrong it is? Have you told them it'll keep them out of heaven? We've got to do that. We need to talk to our young people about fornication. I don't know if you kind of see, as I do, a progression in the kind of things that we have been describing leading up to the sin of fornication. Teach your kids to avoid sexual sin. Teach your kids to remain sexually pure. Teach your kids to be chaste until marriage. We we need to do that. We've got to be up front. I'm going to tell you, the world is very... Blunt, the world is very graphic. The world expresses these matters to our children in very plain terms. We're going to have to be just plain as the world. We're going to have to talk to them just as openly and frankly as the world is on the negative side. We've got to talk to them on the positive side. We've got to talk to our kids about the sin of fornication. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18 Paul says, flee fornication. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Flee from fornication. You get the idea that Paul is saying in in situations, there may be such situations that you just need to literally run away. Get out of there. Avoid it. No matter how you have to do it, avoid it. Run from fornication. I tell you, when I read that, when I read that expression, it reminds me of, of the story of Joseph that we've recently studied in our Sunday morning class. And when Potiphar's wife was intent on committing this sin with Joseph, he literally shed his coat and fled out of the house to get away from that temptation. Flee fornication. Joseph stands as a good example of that. Run away. 
Parents, you need to give your young people that kind of instruction and encouragement. But I want to tell you, it's not just the ultimate act of fornication. Notice that Paul uses that same terminology in 2 Timothy 2, 22. Flee also youthful lust. Notice, flee the youthful lust. Follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them. Call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So you don't just avoid the ultimate act of fornication. Paul also uses that same terminology and said, flee the things that lead up to that ultimate sin. And young young people need that kind of encouragement and help, and parents need to be giving them that kind of instruction. Help our young people. Talk to your kids. Discuss with them the sin of fornication. Well, uh, there are four important areas that I hope that you agree with me are very important. Now, we could add to this list, and there's a lot of subjects that need to be discussed with our young people. But again, I'm concerned that in many of these areas, we're losing the battle. You parents have got to be concerned for your kids in regards to these subjects in particular. I want to add one more. to that. And again, as I said at the outset, this is not an all-inclusive list, but I want to add one more to that. And that is you need to talk to your young people about not compromising their faith and, and be willing to be different. I got to tell you, uh, it's really concerning. It's scary when you hear parents, when you hear parents who are Christians who would say something like, I don't want my kids to be different. I don't want my kids to miss out on some of these things. Really? Seriously? You don't want them to be different? Really? You don't want your kids to be different from the world? Do you know that surveys indicate that only 4% of America's teenagers uh, believe that there's such a thing as moral absolutes? Grasp that for a minute. Just 4% of American teens believe that there's anything that's absolutely right or wrong. Well, they certainly haven't been exposed to Bible truth, have they? If they don't understand right from wrong, that, and that's the problem. They're not being taught right from wrong. They don't think there's any absolute rights or wrong. Get this, along those lines. Among American teens, only one out of five believe that sex before marriage is wrong. Now grasp that. Only one out of five American teenagers believe that sex before marriage is wrong. That's the world our kids are growing up in. But as I said, parents say, I don't want my children to be different. Really? You don't want your kids to be different? You want your kids to be like that? You want your kids to be among the 80% who think having premarital sex is fine? You want your kids to be among the 95% of American teens who think there are no absolute rights or rights and wrongs. You want your kids to be like that? You, you really don't want your kids to be there? Are you serious? You better hope your kids are different. And the way that they're going to be different is because you make them different. You teach them not to compromise their values and their morals. You teach them that they will have to be different if they're going to be the people that God wants them to be. In the text that Matt read for us earlier, you know it well. 1 Peter 4, beginning verse 3, The time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, 
wherein they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excessive riot, speaking evil of you. Now, we could, use, we could spend a lot of time here in this text, and it deals with some of the very subjects we've been talking about tonight. But I just want you to concentrate on this. When, when you don't do what the people of the world do, they think you're strange. If our teens don't do the things that modern teenagers do, then they're going to be considered strange. Your kids are going to be considered strange. Okay. I want my kids to be strange. I want them to be different than the teenagers of the world. But we have got to help them accept that reality. You're going to be considered strange. If you live like God wants you to live, they're going to think you're an oddball. Okay. Accept it. It goes with the territory of being God's people. Young people have to deal with that reality. And parents, you've got to help them accept that reality. In Matthew chapter 5, beginning verse 11, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is in heaven. Your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus understood that his faithful disciples would be insulted and persecuted. We've got to help our kids accept that reality. If you're going to be a, a young person, teenager, if you're going to be a faithful Christian, then there, there's a price to be paid. People will insult you for your faith. They will, they will make it hard on you. They'll ridicule you. Think about it this way. There's a reward in heaven. That, that's going to be the ultimate make it worth kind of consideration, right? But also, he talks about the prophets who were before you. Jesus said, it's always been so. It's always been so that God's faithful people have been belittled, ridiculed, insulted, and persecuted. So if that happens to you, you're in great company. You're in the company of God's faithful people through the ages. Accept it. I'm going to tell you, though, young people are at a hard time. And, and this, in particular, I think, is something that parents really need to help our kids grasp. Don't compromise your faith, your morals, your values. Be willing to be different. Well, those are some things that I do think parents need to be discussing with your teens. And I'm going to tell you, if you're going to discuss those things effectively, you're going to have to spend more than 37 minutes a day to get the job done. I know that you are. I know that our parents are much better than that. But these are trying times for our young people, and you need to be talking to your kids about these sorts of things. Again, it's been a little bit of a cursory treatment of several important moral issues, but I hope it's just a reminder to us all about, about the importance of these things. Thanks for your good attention to what we've had to say. We're going to sing a song of invitation. As we sing the song, let us know if we can help you in getting your life right with God. If you need to obey the gospel, we'd be glad to assist. If you need the prayers of the saints, we'd pray with you and for you. If we can help in any way, let us know while we stand and sing.